Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about every film fan's favorite, The French New Wave. Right, Will? Yes, and we are talking about every film fan's... I was going to say least favorite director from it, but that's probably not true because the people who know this man love this man. To be a least favorite, he would have to be known by people (laughs) as opposed to being completely anonymous like Luc Moulet's. So I first learned about Luc Moulet from you. Actually, I probably heard about him before because he's a Kaye critic. You probably heard about him in uh, one of the Jonathan Rosenbaum books because that's where I heard about him. Yes, I would have seen that. And also he had a quote, which I still quote all the time. He was referring to Samuel Fuller and he said, and I'm just paraphrasing this, on the subject of fascism, the only perspective that is interesting is from a man who has been tempted. I think of that all the time when t- when thinking about a movie like, I don't know, The Wolf of Wall Street or, you know, any movie that trades in problematic subject matter. So I, th- I thank him for adding that to my vocabulary. I thought you were going to mention the other quote that he has that was stolen from him by Godard and that everybody gives to Godard, also about Samuel Fuller, which are tracking shots are a question of morality. And then Godard flipped it and said, morality are a question of tracking shots. And he's the most famous one when it comes to uh, people quoting it. That's a great question. Quote, and I am ashamed to tell you that I don't know what it means. <laughs> um, I read an interview book about Luc Moulet, and the interviewer asks the same thing. <laughs> and it's mostly, it comes down to like, tracking shots it imposes a kind of meaning a kind of ferocity that samuel fuller when he uses them it could be interpreted as kind of like a fascist kind of manner in the way that like it's in your face there's no other way it's a pure imposition on the viewer I see. well okay I, that's true and also all cinematic techniques are a form of morality or a form of judgment in some way but anyway luke moulet you have done a deep dive into him before. You always described him to me as the Edgar G. Ulmer of the French New Wave, which is a reference that um, our longtime fans of the show will understand. Casual fans may not understand. I certainly didn't quite understand it uh, when you first put it to me that way. But now I think I do, because this guy, more than any of the other guys, was an Edgar G. Ulmer super fan. Edgar G. Elmer, the Poverty Row master, the uh, greatest artist in Hollywood with the lowest budgets, uh, a man who turned sow's ears into cinematic silk purses. And Luc Moulet also made films that are very modest, very humble, drawing on American genre uh, influences and very playful and and subterranean almost. And I feel that when you watch Luc Moulet's film, there's also... Just like, you know, when you think of Detour, a control of the cinematic form in interesting ways. And we'll get into it when we talk about his films, but like in ways that is always drawing attention to the fact that what you're watching is a movie. And not in the same kind of like cool cinematic ways that like a Godard would do in Breathless, where you have like jump cuts and handheld camera. More like, it's the person doing this did they do this on purpose or did they just do it because they don't know how to make a movie, which is a very fine line to walk? Yeah, so I watched four of his features, none of which are very long, and one of his shorts this week. And I still don't quite have a handle on him aesthetically because he's made some films like A Girl is a Gun that are quite, I think, visually beautiful. He's made films like Les Sieges de l'Alcazar, which are visually functional. And he's made films like Anatomy of a Relationship that almost like look consciously bad, like like an underground film. I'm putting bad in quotation marks here. 
What unites them, I think, is a kind of playful spirit. I don't know what you make of that observation. Uh, well, I would say that I could see a Luc Moulet film and know it just in the way that he frames the kind of staticness of his images. He never moves his camera. Uh, I've read an interview. He said, I've maybe used a dolly move in like five or six films. The camera will pan and stuff like that, but it's almost drawing your attention to this kind of no budget feel like he never makes an attempt to kind of pretty his images he is always happy to give the audience exactly the kind of resources that he had to work with there's also a sly humor throughout all of his films that can go the gamut to like almost looney tune fritz freeling style joke 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 and also a kind of almost brechtian dissonance to what you're watching where you're like oh they want me to know that what I'm watching is a movie, and that's the joke. Now, side note, this man has made over 30 films, many of them shorts, some of them features. None of them have been very successful. He has not made big inroads in America. He has not even been very successful in France. It seems to me that that is almost like central to the meaning of the films. The film's as they go along, in particular, get more and more kind of like self-consciously small. And you can see from the beginning, like, he was trying to imitate in his own way what the other French New Wave directors were doing. When we say he was part of the French New Wave, he was in there. He was writing for Cahiers. His first shorts, one of them was produced by Truffaut. One of them was produced by Godard. Like, he knew all of these people. He was good friends with Romer. And when we're talking about, like, low-budget French New Wave directors, I think that Eric Hamaille is, like the one that people think of because he made very small kind of talky dramas that did not need big technical crews like him and Jacques Rivette they never went up to like the Truffaut or Godard level. They kind of stayed where they started and just got comfortable there. Luc Moulet's film kind of degrade over time where it almost feels like he can't even afford actors anymore. So he's just in the main roles <laughs> as his filmography keeps going. By the way, I have a book called A History of the French New Wave by Richard Newpert. I picked it off the shelf this week thinking, all right, great. I'm going to learn all about Luc Moulet in here. This will give me a nice analysis. He is mentioned once in the book on like page 130 in reference to Claude Chabrol. And that's because none of his films were ever successful. But the reason that we're talking about him right now is that he just kept making them. He's still alive, at least unless he passed away and nobody wrote about it <laughs> because he would be quite aged at this Let's point. Let's talk first about uh, the movie that he made that I think we both love, the movie that ignited my interest in him, which is Le Siege de l'Alcazar, also known as uh, The Sieges of Alcazar. Um, it's from 1989, and it is... Maybe the greatest film ever made about cinephilia. A hundred percent. I've watched it many times over the years, and it's only gotten better every time that I watch it. I mean, it's great. It's only like 45 minutes long, so it's not even that much to take in. But there are so many gags and so many things that hit so deep to anybody that loves movies, just like mercilessly, but in a way that you know the person making it. That's because they see themselves in all of this. You know, as I was watching this movie, I was wondering, like, what what exactly is the audience for this film? <laughs> Me, you, Luc Moulet. Yeah, exactly. Like, for us, this hits so close to home. This is so raw and so real. Uh, it, it's set in Paris in 1955, and the main character is played by Olivier Maltini, Maltenti, I think. He plays a character named Guy, who's a film critic for Cahiers du Cinema. And he is in the middle of advocating very strongly for the Italian director. Director Vittorio Cotafavi, 
Cardafavi is uh, presented in this movie, at least, as kind of the Edgar G. Ulmer of Italy. Which is not 100% true, but uh, I don't need to get into my obsession with Cardafavi, which came out only from watching this movie, and that Luc Moulet, like genuinely loves him as well, which is also a good entry point here. This Kaye film critic often goes to see the work of Cardafavi, which is regularly revived at the local repertory cinema. He's working on a book about him. He's written extensively about him in the pages of Kaye. There's a part in this movie where he goes to see a film that he thinks is by Cardafavi, and it's actually by another filmmaker. It's by Ottavio Scotti. And he says, I was sure it was a Cardafavi film, but seeing someone else's name on the poster troubled me. What if La Franchie wasn't a Cardafavi? Had I enjoyed it solely because of the name of Cardafavi? Or was Ottavio Scotti a genius? And we also get the kind of mechanics of watching movies. Like, the, the guy loves this cinema. He will only sit in the children's section because, uh, by his own words, I'm not paying extra to get less of the screen. <laughs> he has his specific seats that he likes sitting in. He's like, ah, yes, don't touch the Titanic, the one that you sink in. Then it cuts to like a visual gag of like almost a Zucker Brothers style, like someone literally disappearing into a seat. <laughs> And the protagonist of this is like, uh, he wears like a suit and tie, but it's schlubby. It's all over him. At one point, a character goes, ugh, just like all film critics, his breath stinks. <laughs> I, I love I love how he's sort of positioned as like almost kind of a brand building guy. It's like he's a critic and he has to stake out his territory. This is the filmmaker who will be mine. This is the filmmaker who I am hitching my wagon to. And so Another character in the film is a rival critic, a lady critic from Positif, the the big rival film magazine in Paris at the time, who is very much, she and her magazine are both very much against Cotafavi, but she keeps going to see the Cotafavi movies and he runs into her there. And as part of his, I guess, brand building, he's decided that he really hates Antonioni. Antonioni's very pretentious. He copied everything from Cotafavi, the, 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 yeah. the sense of the existential, but, but uh, Cotafavi is discreet, supple invisible as he says uh you know antonioni actually used katafavi's composer on one of his films and as the other critic points out uh no antonioni did first and then katafavi took it and he's like Argh! there's another scene in this movie that i think about almost every single day where a bunch of the critics are sitting at a cafe bunch of white male nerds all lined up they're, they're talking about movies and then one of them says but there's only one filmmaker who excites me and that is sam newfield <laughs> <laughs> if you know who Sam Newfield is, Sam Newfield directed Terror of Tiny Town. He directed Radar Secret Service, a ton of like shitty B movies, movies that were on Mystery Science Theater, over like 250 movies. Like there is no art in Sam Newfield. And yet. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, speaking of that, we got to do a bargain bin classics of some Sam Newfield movies. <laughs> exactly. And this is why this is why I love this movie, because when he says Sam Newfield, for guys like us, we start looking up Sam Newfield and we start being like, hmm, maybe there is some poetry to the work of Sam Newfield after all. <laughs> I uh, got these big uh, encyclopedias about French cinema and at the back, scribbled in the margins, is written Edgar G. Elmer and Sam Newfield. <laughs> and it's like, oh no, one of me owned this book before. <laughs> oh man. So this movie just understands like obsession. Uh, I don't think I see myself so much in somebody who's like, I need to stake out a filmmaker, which is a, was a real like KE kind of thing. But everything. Oh, well, I see. I see myself in it. Oh, yes. Do you? 
<laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Hey, li- listen, I put together a book about fucking Matt Farley. I definitely know the feeling of like, I mean, I love Matt Farley, but I know the feeling of being like, okay, this thing is going to be mine. <laughs> See, I never thought that about uh, when I wrote a book about Albert Pune. My idea was like, let me just get it out there. And then it's not mine anymore. Oh, God, I, I really admire that, Justin. Uh, I wish I I wish I shared that selfless quality. <laughs> me, I, I want to go to my grave as having been like, like the guy who <laughs> the guy who wrote the book about Matt Farley. <laughs> Don't worry, Will. When I outlive you, I'll make sure to put it right on your gravestone. <laughs> and the Will Sloan song wrote about you will play when people walk by. So other than this movie, which is an easy like cinephile's delight. I mean, uh, Moulin made a whole bunch of other films, and like we will keep saying, none of them were successful. And I think they weren't successful because there's never a kind of conscious, audience-pleasing feeling I get from these movies. They are an expression of self, but not one that it's like, all right, I'm trying to hit this particular target. Even though that he would say that his Western, A Girl is a Gun, a.k.a. Uh, Les Aventures de Billy the Kid, was his attempt at doing something more commercial. Which, if that's his most commercial, good luck. Yeah, I mean, I guess it is because it has an actual movie star in it, Jean-Pierre Lyot, and it is a Western, so it is a recognizable genre. And it also seems to be tapping into something that was popular at the time. Like, it's an acid Western, sort of like Alejandro Jodorowsky. And it it borrows a little bit from the spaghetti westerns that would have been popular at least recently. And I think it also throws back to like Hollywood westerns. Like Moulet says that his two favorite filmmakers are King Vidor and Cecil B. DeMille. And you can see him trying to kind of capture that almost weird kind of artifice, almost like plastic quality to this picture. And the way that he goes about it is that it's mostly throwing these actors like Jean-Pierre Léo up against these beautiful, colorful landscapes. And like one of the main jokes of the film is that every actor is often struggling up a hill. And hills are definitely a theme in the cinema de Luc Moulet. He loves mountains and they're everywhere in his movies. It's kind of a beautiful movie. Uh, visually uh, it took me a little while to get on the wavelength of it like i had to understand that uh, you know there is a plot it's about a gunslinger and kind of a kind of a, a woman who's a bit of a temptress figure and uh, she's following him as they traverse this landscape after a shootout there's not much more plot than that and it's all kind of about mood and also understanding that there's not really a point to all of it. I've heard it described as a Dadaist exercise, which it sort of is. There's no point to it really beyond like the mood and the the spirit and the attitude of it. Personally, I think it was very funny. Like I laughed a lot watching this movie, but it's weird to kind of explain the jokes because people listening are like, huh, that's funny. Like, for example, at one point, Jean-Pierre Leo is walking and there's a jump cut and then he's gone and then it cuts to him in a pit and he's like, ah, and like the joke is, they didn't even like shoot him falling over. They just did it through like the cheapest of techniques. We should also mention that we both watched the export version of the film called uh, A Girl is a Gun, which is dubbed in very ridiculous American accents, like Southern American accents. So if you wanted to see Jean-Pierre Lyod dubbed as if, well, as if he was a character in a spaghetti Western. What are you doing over there? Come over here. And I think that like the reason Moulet prefers this version is because it just goes back to the idea of the movie itself, which is like, it's the metal textual, like, we know this is a movie. And by doing this, that's part of the comedy of it. But I think to get it, you need to know all of this stuff. And if I was just going to see a Western, 
that for some reason stars Jean-Pierre Liu, I'd be like, what the hell is this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at one point, uh, they're sleeping and Jean-Pierre Liu has been shot in the arm and uh, the woman repairs his arm just by removing the makeup off of it. And he's like, oh, wow, that, that just made it feel much better. It's a movie that I would love to see like projected in a theater so that I could sort of like vibe with it a little more rather than on, on my laptop. I would kind of like to like live in this movie a bit more. <laughs> yeah, like on a giant screen, these like beautiful kind of landscapes that you never really see in any other cinema populated by these like little insignificant figures. Jean-Pierre Leo through the movie runs like hunched down <laughs> walking. And by the end, he's essentially turned into like a Daffy Duck style figure, like a series of running gags at the end. He's, he's like, I just want to die. And he just can't die no matter what happens. It was strange to watch this movie in, in the middle of all the other movies we watched because we also watched Anatomy of a Relationship from 1975, which is a very a much smaller scaled contemporary drama shot in black and white with kind of no visual panache. I mean, it looks good. It looks the way it should look, but it's not like it doesn't have the swagger of something like Breathless. It's very flatly lit. A, a lot of just like long static takes. And it's also very uncomfortable. Like, should I be watching this? It feels like surveillance footage of a real relationship almost. I read Luc Moulet say he was actually inspired by a married couple, the famous documentary that was made, uh, the Alan King one. And you can kind of see it in the way that he sets things out. But the big difference is that the whole film is about Luc Moulet being emasculated because he can't understand that his girlfriend would actually want to feel pleasure during sex. That is a concept very foreign to him that he can't get a grip on. Well, beyond that, it's like the idea that he's not providing pleasure to her just just by virtue of being there. Uh, so, yeah, most of the movie is about they've been together for three years and she basically has finally worked up. Uh, the ability or the courage or whatever to tell him that n not once, not ever, has he ever sexually satisfied her. And this is very perplexing to him. You know, he's he's been around for a little while. They've had a lot of sex. Uh, surely, even in their early days, even. And we should point out that Luc Moulet is playing himself. <laughs> like, he's a filmmaker. There's a great part where after one of these failed sexual encounters, he says, I'm like, oh, God, the whole span of human history, men have been having sex like I have. Why did I have to be born now? You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, they were so lucky back then. Why did I have to deal with all of this woman empowerment, wanting all the sexes to be equal thing? Oh, so frustrating. I should point out as well that this was co-directed by Moulet's wife, Antonietta Pizorno. So you do get both their perspective. It's not just him being self-deprecating by her co-directing and also co-writing, you do get both perspectives in the but film. oddly enough, she does not play herself. Uh, there's an actress named Christine Hebert who plays her. She herself appears towards the end in this fourth wall-breaking section where all the characters debate what the ending should be, which adds kind of like a strange uh, layer of remove to the film. Yeah, because that documentary feeling you have throughout, and then it kind of takes you back and says, oh, well, this is not a documentary. But here are the real people that are involved in it. It's, again, adding those, like, Brechtian touches to it to make you question what you're seeing. I mean, but you can't question Luc Moulet's flaccid penis right there on screen. Yeah, we see his dick and his balls. Uh, mm. I, I understand from research that this is not the only film in which Luc Moulet has shown his dick. And I respect that, I gotta say. Uh, he said that he's often called upon when they need a actor to appear naked and they don't want to pay too much. He's always <laughs> ready and willing. Oh, man. 
So we both watch, uh, I believe it's like Luc Moulet's last fictional film. Yeah, it's called Death's Glamour from 2006. And I was I was quite excited to watch this one because it's it's a meta movie where Luc Moulet plays himself. And the premise of it is that he's, he's very frustrated that after all these years, he hasn't become more popular. None of his movies have been successful. So much like Pauly Shore in Pauly Shore is Dead, he decides I am going to fake my own death and that will bring attention to me uh but what happens after he's faked his own death and changed clothes with a body that he's found on a mountain he learns that Jean-Luc Godard has died and he's like oh no if they find my body I'm just gonna be a footnote (laughs) so so he ends up having to move the body again and (laughs) and that sounds like it's the whole concept of the movie but it gets even more complicated than that where like they do find his body and he does make the news but then nobody will believe that he's back from the dead because his age (laughs) will make more money off of you know his previous things and him making new things also he wants to make a new movie based on a thomas hardy novel and you see scenes from it play out including a very funny cutaway where he goes "Eh, let's just make them all naked it'll save on costuming and then you see it play out with nude actors i like the part where you know after he dies and he's on the front page of every newspaper you see like a, a potential financier on TV mourning him. And he's like, oh, I had the chance to produce his last movie, but I didn't and I, I will regret it forever. And so then a couple of days later, Moulet, still alive, walks into his office and said, okay, I saw you on TV. You want to make my last movie. So I'm thinking the star should be either Jennifer Lopez or Nicole Kidman. And it should be this, it should be this. And then, and then he gets escorted out. And then there's another financier where like, there's a whole line of fake moulets. One gag that I really like is that he starts the film with like a crazy dyed beard. And oh, he looks so bad. And then like it fades away as the movie goes and he just looks older and more terrible as it plays. Oh, uh, you know what? I underrated this movie. I only gave this three and a half stars on Letterboxd uh, because it was so modest. But as I'm looking back now, this is this is like an Albert Brooks comedy. You know, that deadpan affectless style of comedy. Well, you compared uh, Moulet to Albert Brooks and I think that's especially the kind of self-referential putting yourself on screen kind of thing is that like it almost feels he has no resources so what he's going to put is himself and in uh death's glamour it's like himself at the rawest form his wife plays herself but she wants nothing to do with him (laughs) he's like oh you're faking your own death i don't care leave me alone i want to continue my life you know now that you're out of it it's actually gotten better and it's still filled with like weird cinematic in jokes i'm sure 90 percent flew right above my head but then there's one where he gets committed to an insane asylum and he's so excited to be there because he's like ah the insane asylum that's where they find all of these rare prints of films that don't exist anymore right 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 like they found uh what was it caligari or was it nosferatu uh, they found joan of arc and i think metropolis was another one the like extended versions of metropolis why is this movie not like Polly shore is dead why is it not like simply a navel gazing off-putting exercise i feel like Pauly Shore is really in love with himself that while he can kind of parrot the fact that people are annoyed with him, Pauly Shore is dead reflects the idea that he doesn't understand why they would be annoyed with him because he's a funny guy that everybody should love. Death's glamour is like Luc Moulet going, listen, I suck. 
I think I suck. And that's why it's so funny, because there is just like a nakedness that feels pure. He's never depicted as somebody who like was truly cheated out of anything. Like the the fact that that his career has been a failure. There's never really a sense in this film that he deserved better. I mean, obviously, we know he deserved better, but the movie depicts him as like kind of this kind of this foolish figure. And the part where he goes to that financier's office and says, "Okay, you wanted my movie. I'm going to do this, going to do this, going to do this. And then he gets dragged out like it's 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 like a fantasy scenario, but but not a (laughs) fantasy outcome. (laughs) Like he gets the outcome that he deserves for having done something this fucking stupid. He keeps like putting himself down in a way where you almost sense him behind the camera going like, yeah, this is what would happen. I really deserve this. The parts after he fakes his own death and then he goes to like the newsstand and he he looks at every newspaper that has him on the front page and you just like sit with him there as he picks every single one off the shelf. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so funny because it's like, what what does this prove like there's no catharsis to this it's like oh cool you were on the front of the newspaper like big deal i mean there's so many funny jokes in this movie like the fact that (laughs) they accuse him for being the guy that actually died and they book him for murdering luc moulet (laughs) everyone's like (laughs) why would luc moulet fake his own death that's crazy you're obviously the murderer i feel like here what's really funny about it is that he understands the strain of humor that by putting himself into it just makes it funnier. I mean, you kind of need to know who Luc Moulet is at a certain point, that he was part of this French New Wave, that he failed, and that he would reach this point in his life. That is extra funny. Like, Pauly Shore was successful, and then he fell from grace after a year when people sobered up. Luc Moulet was never successful, and that's why it's extra funny. Yeah, and we all we all think that we deserve better than we've got. We all mm-hmm. we all wonder what it will be like, you know, at our funerals. You know, everybody who has wronged us or whatever will finally come around. Um, <laughs> well, in this movie, Luc Moulet's wife ends up killing him for real at the end. <laughs> <laughs> body gets thrown in a ditch where someone steals his wallet. Okay, you know, I want to go and add a whole star to my star rating now. I'm really talking myself into it. It felt like a very modest achievement when I watched it a few nights ago, but now I realize this is a really funny movie. So, Luc Moulet, I feel, is one of those uh, directors that, like, we're only really scratching the surface in a way. Like, I really like his first movie, Brigitte et Brigitte, and I always think about it because the way that he shot it was all in front of, like, a white wall, like a fake studio mixed in with like kind of guerrilla style in the streets of Paris. So there's like a weird kind of like, what's going on? Because you've never seen a movie faker than that on screen. And like Les Contrabandiers, The Smugglers, his third film. And there was a box set that came out in the States. His work feels like Arrow is like in the wings, like... This is the kind of stuff that companies should jump on and introduce to a new audience. I agree, but it's also the kind of work that deserves to be shared with people passing each other DVDRs, as you did <laughs> uh, to me with Le Siege de la Cazar a couple of years ago. Uh, he he feels like an under the radar thing, a secret among cinephiles. Uh, and now we're letting you in on that secret. So go explore. All right. So as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. So I have a letter here from Pete Kahn and it goes greetings from the UK. Thanks for the show. It's fast become one of my favorite film podcasts around. I've always tried to see a wide range of cinema as possible, but you've really expanded my scope of what is out there. And I have discovered a newfound Matt Farley fandom thanks to your praise of the man. There you go, Will. He's my Cota Favi. Yep. 
If you're anything like me, there are always hundreds, if not thousands of films on your to-see list. And yet, there is always a huge amount of films I've seen in the past, which I feel I may develop a richer relationship with upon a revisit. Particularly with titles that I feel I've missed something about upon initial viewing. When there's always so much you may be meaning to get around to, how do you strike a balance between making new discoveries versus coming back to previously seen titles? Thanks and keep up the fine work. Pete can honestly say that it's something that I've never really thought about. I go where my mood takes me. Sometimes that means watching Batman 1989 for the 500th time. Uh, and, and sometimes that means exploring a new discovery. But I would say trust your instincts. I'm going to say that I do consciously think about that being like, I want to watch something that I haven't watched in a while because I find when I get stuck in ruts where I like watch either movies of the kind I like, like martial arts films or like horror stuff. If I watch a bunch of them in a row, it just makes me sadder because it's like, ah, it's just, I'm just stuffing candy in my mouth. <laughs> like it makes me feel kind of sick that like, if I kind of break it up, the stuff that I really like or discover, I'll like even more because it is separate from all of that. I don't actually revisit movies that much because I feel almost as a kid, I had almost nothing that I could watch. And that like, even now, the opportunity that there's, oh my God, there's so much stuff that I need to go out there and watch because I haven't gotten a chance yet or discover. I just love that a lot. So like even movies that, you know, I really like, like John Woo's Hard Boiled. I think I saw it theatrically with you, Will. That's the last time I saw it, even though it's like the greatest action movie of all time. Yeah, that's the last time I saw it too. Um, although I have seen it. 15 times uh, easily. Because as a kid, it was one of the movies that I owned. I revisit movies all the time. I, I love it. And as far as like new stuff coming out, over the last few years, and we've talked, I've talked about this a little bit, I've reached the point where I'm like, well, I don't need to watch that. I know I'm not going to like it. Like I see people on Netflix like watching movies and I'm like, why are you watching that? Yeah, there was, there was definitely a period when I felt more of an obligation to keep up with the current cinema, which is, you know really stupid because you're actually not obligated to watch anything like uh but but i i felt like i was doing my due diligence in some way watching like all the best picture nominees or some or or you know like the latest judd apatow movie you know a guy who i don't even fucking like but you know just sl slavishly going to see his movies anyway uh and i have found in particular that during the pandemic it's been much harder to keep up with current movies like actually i have felt that, that i've had to more consciously watch new movies in the pandemic because every now and then I'll th I will think I I want to I want to see what's happening. I want to try to like keep up a little bit. And so like a week or two ago I was like, "Okay, I'm going to watch On the Rocks and I'm going to watch Spree tonight as a double feature." Just see stuff because a problem with keeping up with new movies in the pandemic is that if it's if it's in a theater, there's a whole experience to it, and it's so concentrated, and you feel like you're part of the original audience going to see a movie. You you're, you feel like you're part of some kind of conversation. Whereas if it's all on your Roku right now, competing with every single other movie ever made, you know it it lacks that special quality. It, it feels less urgent. You as a listener feel the need to watch every new movie that comes out. I would try to take a step back and ask yourself, why do I feel the need to watch every new movie? No one cares. Like, no one's going to be like, you haven't seen this? It, uh, if they do and it's like bad movies, don't talk to those people. They're bad. <laughs> and if it's because you want to kind of enrich yourself, watching all the new movies will not do that. It's better to try to challenge yourself and to watch different things than you would watch. I think that is more because that's a personal thing. It will 
like raise the enjoyment and the thoughtfulness of the experiences you have watching movies as opposed to just whatever garbage is being piled on and you're like hey i gotta watch everyone's talking no one's talking about it are your friends talking about this movie they're probably not like come on you know what i like doing i've been trying to watch every edgar g elmer movie so uh i i like to find (laughs) the best public domain copy of jive junction i can find and then watch that and then be like released by david callett uh because he put it out through his uh dvd company I like looking at it and being like, oh, there's a shadow. That's Edgar. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, me and Will were recently looking in wonder at the fact that a lot of people have watched The Wife of Monte Cristo, that when I released it on the Bluebeard disc, had like one review on Letterboxd, but all these people who got Bluebeard have been reviewing it. So thank you so much for doing that. The one that that I find so great is uh, Gold Ninja Video put out Strangler of the Swamp not long ago. And as a bonus feature, there was Frank Wisbar's movie, The Prayer which when when you found it secret feature yes a uh, secret feature when you found it it had zero views on letterboxd and now it's up to eight <laughs> yeah. and god bless all of you who have watched the prairie who have who have sought it out and looked at it you are the true soldiers of cinema <laughs> no you know who the true cannon fodder of cinema is the people that dive deep into our three stooges discs because oh boy we're sorry there, yeah there was that one uh, crazy nights with shemp howard mm-hmm. or it has another title ghost something or other ghost crazy or something like that yeah a three stooges ripoff directed by william bodine yeah so some some people have actually watched that and when justin and i put that on like i jokingly suggested it i was like oh what if what if this is a hidden feature and then you were like you madman let's do it (laughs) we we just liked it there as ornamentation we thought it was funny to have that as a hidden feature you weren't meant to watch it but god bless you if you have you find a treasure map you dig down you're like sweaty covered in like um dust and mud you open it up and it's just a big turd there and then you start eating it (laughs) i mean i've i've watched ghost crazy so i'm i'm no better and i know i released a podcast about this before this but there's a bunch of new gold ninja video releases that are out including wolf devil director the films of pearl chang which people have continually emailed me about it's back in print you can buy it now as long as you pair it together with Blood of the Dragon, which is a collection of films directed by Cao Pao Shu, who is another uh, female director that worked in Taiwan. And we also have Personal Space Invader, a film that I worked on many years ago before Teddy Bomb in its ultimate edition. So I did a new interview with the director, the sequels on there, so much uh, fun stuff. A VHS version of the movie where I literally burned the film to DVD, played it on a DVD, and using a combo uh, player, taped it on a really crummy VHS that had like a peplum on it. (laughs) So I even kept the beginning of the peplum and then it jumps to the movie. And so it's all washed out, filled with hiss. And for anyone who's Canadian, I also put city TV commercials throughout as if you're like watching a city TV broadcast. So uh, that's on there. And also an amazing film called A Sweet and Vicious Beauty, which is one of the rare times during Golden Ninja Video that I saw a movie realized it didn't have a blu-ray release and just reached out cold called the director and went hey could i put your film out on blu-ray and he was like yeah okay and he's worked with me and we've done tons of special features there's gonna be commentary tracks there's an amazing hong kong inspired feature film he made in 2003 that he never released anywhere and there may also be a secret feature on the disc that was shot on super eight millimeter that he made that i would describe as basket case if it was a noir and also had martial arts sequences <laughs> so check it out check them all out goldninjavideo.com limited edition pick them up 
So, what are we doing next week, Will? Oh, what are we doing on our Patreon, actually? On our Patreon, we are talking about a movie that we have long wondered about. Uh, not intensely, but but mildly, latently. Uh, what if uh, a filmmaker tried to slavishly recreate the Marx Brothers in the 90s with John Turturro as Groucho? Well, it happened. And what if that filmmaker was Dennis Dugan, the director of Happy Gilmore? Folks, <laughs> It's no fantasy, it's reality. It's Brain Donors from 1992. We watched it. Did we like it? You'll have to find out. <laughs> At patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. Only $5 a month, and you get that episode in our entire back catalog. It's crazy. And also, any screenings that we may be doing in the near future. I don't have any announcements, but I will post it on here when I do. Okay. So next week, we decided to go classic Hollywood because we haven't done it in a while, right, Will? That's right. We are talking about the rat, Elia Kazan. A real piece of garbage. Let's just say that right off the top. Uh, a, a man with a, uh, shall we say, complex legacy. And we will be talking about his um, solid gold classic, A Streetcar Named Desire, the James Dean film East of Eden, which, believe it or not, I have never seen. Me neither. And another movie that I have actually never seen, Splendor in the Grass, the movie that gave us Warren Beatty. I feel like we'll talk about why we haven't seen these movies uh, during the podcast. I mean, when I became more of a cinephile, I think it had something to do with the fact that he, again, was a real piece of shit <laughs> and made a whole amazing movie about how unions are bad. Yeah. Great film on the waterfront. <laughs> great film. But, you know, when you stop and think about it for a second, you're like, uh-oh. But that's what we'll be doing next week. So until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Justin interrupting briefly to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include Pete Can, Cole Flowers, Kyle McStay, Marcus, and Michael Davies. Thanks so much for becoming patron subscribers. We could not keep doing this without you. And just as a reminder, which I will keep doing until it happens, on December 12th, I will be hosting a holiday movie mind melter online. So essentially, it's going to be 24 hours of holiday movies that if you are brave enough, I challenge you to come and watch with me and whoever else shows up. It was a blast when we did the Halloween one. Everybody bonded as we enjoyed and suffered as the hours rolled on all of the wild movies movies that played this time it's not going to be completely movies that i haven't seen it'll just mostly be movies i haven't seen and whatever obscure and perhaps classic holiday movies that i would love to watch with a group of people so i hope you can make it out to that for more information check out my twitter profile at decluj d-e-c-l-o-u-x the letter j it's december 12th at noon and you'll find the link and stuff on my profile and with that I now return you to your regular schedule programming. So Tenet leaked this week. I'm, I'm not sure what happened, but suddenly it ended up on my computer as well. Uh, and, and somebody pressed play on it, and I watched the whole thing. I think uh, the ruling class is constantly wiping out any possibility of a better future. So let's take a little bit of money from them for well, once. Well, Christopher Nolan, he's one of us, right, Will? Someone who just loves movies, <laughs> loves making movies. Like Luc Moulet, I feel when I think of Nolan, and it's about him having a laugh and playing with the form. Or, you know, it's dead seriousness, po-faced dumbness, which is exactly what Tenet is. So I was looking forward to seeing this movie. 
I am not a big Christopher Nolan fan, but I do like movies. I do sometimes like to see movies that are like 500 feet tall and uh, you can feel the theater seats rattling from the bass sound. And I did a number of times think that I would have enjoyed watching this movie more if I were seeing it, you know, on that big IMAX screen with that sense of anticipation in in the theater. Um, I did miss the theatrical experience. I really didn't like this movie. I think you liked it a bit more than me, but we have a lot of areas of agreement. Oh, yeah. I had a lot of fun with it. I think that you have a lot more Nolan baggage than I do, where you've gone through the period where you're like, the Dark Knight, man, this guy, he gets it. He's smart. And then in some way you were betrayed by that later on. While me, you know, I really like Batman Begins. I had my issues with the Dark Knight. We did a whole episode about Christopher. I loved Memento. You had to. It was the 2000s. You couldn't love Memento and be watching movies and be a white male. But at a certain point, I, I'm trying to figure out when it was. I was like, eh, Christopher Nolan. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are some Christopher Nolan movies that I like better than others. Batman Begins is okay. The Dark Knight is like pretty fun if you can put aside uh, some of the less fun aspects of it. Uh, to me, Tenet leaned into a lot of his worst qualities. Uh, like it was... Uh, I mean, the plot was incredibly hard to follow. Uh, he consciously made the dialogue, which is like 80% exposition difficult to follow uh just just needlessly convoluted for what is basically like a really stupid story i have three words for you late period style okay (laughs) christopher nolan is at his purest here yeah i thought that too actually It, it did it did feel like you know like late clint or something but for christopher nolan because he's done away with characterization uh there there are like one or two moments of levity in this film. See, I think that I reacted more to that that way than like uh, The Dark Knight Rises. Terrible movie. Never going to watch it again. So much plot getting in the way. Feels like Christopher Nolan is shackled. Tenet is like big dumb guy energy monologuing because you're trapped in a corner and he's just talking to you the entire time. And I think that's why I enjoyed it as much as I did. You pointed out that the action scenes are pretty good, and I'll give him that. I think he has definitely evolved as an action director. Yeah, they're pretty good. I mean, compared to Batman Begins, where they're incomprehensible, and uh, Dark Knight Rises, where the lesson he seemed to learn from Batman Begins was put the camera back and play it as slow as possible. Just terrible stuff. And they're pretty fun. Um, Denzel Washington's son is charismatic, and Robert Pattinson is weird. Yeah, Robert Pattinson's pretty good. Uh, I'm just constantly struck by his insistence on taking very kooky premises and ideas like you know dreamscapes and uh time travel and superheroes and uh sucking all the joy out of them i find that a very strange way to make movies i've applied this to a lot of filmmakers before but they're afraid that if they like be kooky that people are going to be like that's dumb so they're trying to be as serious as possible which in the case of christopher nolan makes him just look even more dumb If you know what I mean, it's kind of like a weird mirror image of Rob Zombie. Like this movie is is no smarter than like 12 Monkeys. Uh, in fact, I think it's quite a bit dumber than 12 Monkeys and 12 Monkeys is at least like fun. <laughs> yeah, I, as baffling as this was, I had fun and I always like it when uh, Nolan crashes things into other things because, you know, he needs that. You know, it's kind of like, I need to feel like a big man kind of thing. I wonder if this is the last time we'll see Nolan working at this scale. Uh, because like, it's amazing that there's a movie this expensive, this slick, this like gigantic, that is also this 
abrasive this willingly audience displeasing like i almost have to respect it just on that level <laughs> see i respect it on that level it obviously was not the box office success that it needed to be which is not really christopher nolan's fault uh, entirely at least um but I'm, I, I'm i'm just curious where where he goes from here if he's gonna because he's one of the last filmmakers who's allowed to work at this scale on visions that are entirely personal i don't know but I like the fact that Christopher Nolan said that since his kids saw the Phantom Thread, they call him Mr. Woodcock. <laughs> I bet. <laughs>